Okay, you're in the right room if you're looking for the second in our three-part lunch series with our 18th annual one-month scholar, Professor Mark Dollinger. Our theme for this whole month is A Journey Through American Jewish History. I'm glad so many of you are interested and have been participating with us. Our luncheon theme, which was uh, a member uh, program, uh, is entitled, what's today? The 16th? Uh, American Jewish History. All of American Jewish history. We're doing it in three classes. Uh, last week, which was our first class, we did 1654 through 1880. Today, uh, Mark, we're doing 1880 to 1945, Becoming American. Is that the right class? Uh, lots of other opportunities this week. Yesterday, California Jews, very successful. And uh, tomorrow is our evening series, Land of Opportunity, Land of Challenges. The topic we'll be de dealing with is affirmative action quotas and the myth of meritocracy. Friday night, University Synagogue, American Zionism. They do have a dinner. You can pay and reserve in advance, but please do that ASAP. Saturday morning, Civil Rights and Social Justice, The Untold Story of American Jews, which is the topic of your newest book. And then Sunday, Jews and Politics, Temple Beth Or in La Mirada. Sunday's a very busy day, other things going on. So a lot going on this week. We're right in the thick of the one-month scholar, but almost done. So don't forget to come to our closing January 27th. You have to register for that. And um, that is getting sold out pretty soon. We will have some special treats to enjoy. And uh, we will announce the winners of various competitions, including those of you who attended mo the most programs, as well as our CSP hat challenge. So uh, can everybody find a seat? We have one more over here. No, no, and taken. that's taken. Okay. Oh, well. You just don't see him. Okay, one over there. I'm very happy that we have David uh, Wilner. David's over there in his sunglasses. Are you awake? Are you sleeping? Because we're honoring you, David. You have to be awake. These are the this, better than Okay, this whole month we're honoring David and Oprah, who have uh, really committed their lives to education and Jewish education and have been CSB patrons forever. And David served on the board. So, David, this is, month is for you. And if you have any questions, Mark will come to your home <laughs> with his slide projector. You just tell us. Well, we asked him yesterday. <laughs> okay, we had breakfast. Was that Les Frises? Is that the Les Frises breakfast? Okay. Um, by the way, how many of you have attended more than three programs? I just want to get an idea of where we are. There you go, Mark. How about four? Five? I think we're at the eighth original program. Has anybody attended all of them so far? Besides Mark? <laughs> You have attended all of them? Even repeats? Okay. So I think Sarah Cornell is making a play this year to be the number one uh, attendant, but we will keep track. It's on the honor system. At, at our closing lecture, I will have a chart, and we will see who has attended the most. And I do have prizes I've ordered, and I've ordered something nice for the professor. Okay. Um, I see, is Wendy Aronson here somewhere? Wendy from the Jewish Community Foundation, Executive Director of the Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County is here. So she, this is evidence, Wendy, watch. Well, let's say hi, Wendy. Thank you for your for the Community Foundation support of CSP and the One Month Scholar Program. And thank you for having us in the Legacy Program. If you're in the Legacy Circle, please raise your hand for CSP. Here's some of thank you, Legacy people. If you didn't raise your hand, I just saw you, which means you're potential Legacy people, which means you can ensure the future of CSP and live longer. Win-win. Win-win. So um, please see me. Uh, the, we don't ask you to do anything. There's no obligation to give anything to CSP now. This is to remember us in your legacy plan. We participate. How many, how many institutions in Orange County are in the legacy program these days? 14. 14 institutions are in there, not just us. 
You get a sheet of paper, you can choose us and your synagogue or the JCC or TBT. Um, and you just have to remember us in some way. It could be an insurance policy, a will, trust, estate. We get, we get credit now and, and we get benefits now in your program. And then one day, um, after you're 120 years old and you peacefully exit this world to the next, we can continue doing great programs in Orange County. Um, and also, there are immediate benefits. You get invited to certain programs. So I hope you will join our Legacy Circle, which is uh, mentioned in this along with our donors. I want to thank you, those of you who are donors, and mention that the first person who is a patron-level donor and our first legacy person was Polly Sloan, just so you know, when we announced the program. And Polly turned 94 on Sunday. So I urge you all, yes, let's clap for Polly. I urge you all to please drop Polly a note, give her a call. Um, I don't think she's checking email these days, so it's probably best to call her. Just say hi and wish her happy 94. Hopefully she will come to one of our events. Also one of our longtime patrons, just want to make sure you know, Marion and Lee Brockett. Lee has been hit, was seriously injured. Uh, many of you probably, I don't, many of you know, don't know that he is suffering from early onset uh, Alzheimer's. Lee Brockett. And so he fell and he ended up in the ICU and he has been very, it's just been very bad. I'm told he's doing better now, it just happened. But, um, so if you know Marion and Lee, please do drop them a line, particularly Marion, and just give her a call to check in with her. Um, we take care of our members and our legacy people and uh, we treat them like family. So please, uh, if you know them, contact them. Okay. Uh, before I get to the next part of the program, I ask you all to please turn off your cell phones. Some of you cell phones went off. David Wilner, I will not, you know, I will not uh, point a finger at you, but I think your cell phone went off. So if you weren't being honored this month, I would have kicked you out. Okay, so please do uh, turn off your cell phone, put it on a vibrate mode. And uh, I wanted to mention a few things that are coming up. So this is a very busy Sunday, January 20th. New discoveries in the ancient synagogue of Chukok, Israel. Those of you who have been to Israel know that we're talking about the northern part of Israel. Hi, Rabbi Myers. Northern part of Israel. Um, this is a synagogue, and this is the life's work of Jody Magnus, an archaeologist, where she discovered some amazing things in the synagogue on the floor uh, that, in, that, I don't know if it solves the debate, but really sheds light on what was going on in the Jewish world at this late period of the Roman Empire in Israel, in the north, which was thought to have been a wasteland and dead, but the, the discoveries changes everything. So on Sunday the 20th from uh, 2 to 3 p.m. at uh, right here, what's, where is she going to be? At Concordia University. She'll be speaking. I've sent you information. We have over 75 people just from CSP who've signed up to go. So I hope uh, you will register and go. There is no cost. If you arrive early, though, and you're a CSP member, we get to say hi to Jody and get a photo with her. February 5th, we have a program lessons from Ellie Wiesel's classroom, 7 to 9 p.m. here with Ariel Berger. So two pieces of information about that. Number one is his book just won the National Jewish Book Award for um, the best biography. Just came out this week. And number two is the program is completely sold out. So if you haven't signed up, sorry, you can't come. But uh, you can always get on a wait list. If someone cancels, I will give you a call or an email. February 10th, we have our adult retreat uh, with Gil Chovav. He's the great-grandson of Eliezer ben Yehuda. He's Israel's first foodie. He is fascinating. He's funny. He's a celebrity in Israel. Um, and that's at the Montage Resort. I really don't, it really basically don't have space. But if, it, if someone wants to join us, um, please see me after the program. I'll see what I can do. Two things that you probably don't know about. One is February 13th, you'll be getting an invitation. Karen Franklin is one of the most 
impressive Jewish genealogist in the United States of America. She works on genealogy all around the world, but she's based in the United States. In New York, is coming to town for CSP. She'll be doing a program about uh, genealogy and how to trace yours. If you're coming on our CSP trip to Poland, which is sold out, um, she'll be uh, meeting with our group, but also she will give private time to everybody in the group. You'll get an email about that to work on your own genealogy so that when you get to Eastern Europe, you have something to think about and maybe a place to go or learn more about where you come from. That's February 13th. February 26th, there's a flyer outside. Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer is coming to town. And uh, on the e on evening at uh, Temple Beth El at 6.30 p.m., lecture at 7, he's going to be talking about Together and Apart, the Future of the Israel-Diaspora Divide. I do not like diaspora. That's not a word that I use. So the Israel and the, the Jewish population of Israel and the Jewish population of America. We're a bipolar people, everybody. We act that way, and we are that way. And uh, we're kind of separating. Yehuda Kurtzer, if you haven't heard about him, is, is just fantastic. He's one of the best speakers on this topic. So I urge you to join us February uh, 26th. Mark Michael Epstein comes back to town March 8th uh, for a lunch event, Lions, Unicorns, and Fire Dragons, The Art of the Polish Synagogues. Everybody's invited. It ties into our trip to Poland. And uh, he'll be doing a private tour of the Getty Villa. It'll be announced soon on how to register for that. Then artist Andy Arnovitz comes to town as our artist in residence March 12th to 13th. And you'll be hearing about that. Israel 3.0, I announced here last week that we're going back to Israel, October 18th to 28th, 2020. I said, if you want to be on the list, just no obligation, just to find out more, please do. And our list is about 100 people. So we're not taking 100 people to Israel, because I'm not doing that. And I doubt all 100 will register once we get the final schedule out there. But if you want to be on the list, that means you get the first shot of registering. Uh, we'll go, like, we'll give patrons and members the first shot. People have been on trips. And uh, we will not, we, our goal is to have about... You know, we're not going to take more than 50. That's how many we took last time, but that allows us to do the different tracks. With that, don't forget the last few uh, days of the CSB Cap Challenge for, for uh, this past year. We are recording for iTunes. So, Grendel, we're, how many do we have up there already? Over 200. But how many of these particular presentations do we have up there? We have three of these presentations. Mark Berman, this is what happens when you come late. Sorry. Any extra chairs? We've got Mike and we've got Mark. So Mark, we'll get you a chair from outside. We'll sneak you in there. Okay, do I, do I don't think I have to introduce you because if, if people are here, they know who you are. But this is Professor Mark Dollinger. He's wanted in three states <laughs> as a lecturer. I don't know what you thought I was referring to. He's enjoying, he's a, he is a native Californian, right? Fifth generation Californian. Those of you probably heard about it last night's lecture. But uh, the nice thing is that he knows the value of rain. So he's not irritated that he came all the way to California and it's raining. He's like, wow, that's great. So it's going to rain for like two weeks, apparently. Join me in welcoming Professor Dollinger back for our second in our three-part series. Good news about my wedding was that over 400 people came to celebrate. Bad news, they made me stand through the whole thing. Since... Uh, it's not education until it involves the fire marshal, and we're getting close to the fire marshal. They're making me stand once again through the whole thing. But what I'd like to do is give a little bit to the CSP, and that is that they actually did give me a chair back here for my book bag to sit on, so I will remove that. So um, you can have one more chair. Oh, this is dedication to the field right here. And uh, 
Oh no, what an opening slide. First, I'll let that one sit while I'll tell you. There's an anomaly in the schedule for next week. I just wanted to make sure you knew because so many of you are coming to multiple talks. Our, our Wednesday brown bag, well first I should say the title of my first book is Quest for Inclusion, Jews and Liberalism in Modern America. So for next Wednesday, we're going to do American Jewish History 1945 to the Present, Quest for Inclusion. Thursday night, eight days from now, we're going to do Land of Opportunity, Land of Challenges, Jews and Liberalism in Modern America. We have bifurcated the title of the book into two talks. So I just want you to know it's a book talk, which means I'll talk about the book and we'll do a book signing afterwards. It's the same talk. So if you're planning on coming Wednesday lunch or Thursday night, pick your favorite. Or you can do what I'm going to do and put a little test on the audience to see which one's smarter, which one asks better questions. You can come to both, and then we can have a little conference afterwards and decide who we thought was, was better. So, uh, oh yes, Fiddler on the Roof. It was, at the time, the longest running show in Broadway history. It purported to tell the story of Eastern European Jewish life. It ended, of course, with the pogroms that pushed two million Jews to the United States. While the shtetl of Anatevka never existed, it did in the imaginations of millions of American Jews who saw the Broadway show or watched the movie that was made later or to this day keep singing its songs. Except that was not about Eastern European at all. It was actually about America or American Jews. It romanticized the history. It played on the acculturation of American Jews to the United States. Um, and uh, I'd like to say that today is a story of Fiddler on the Roof, but it's not. But actually, it really is. We're going to look at 1880 to actually 1945 today. Good afternoon and welcome back. It's great to see you all again. If you are interested in a more scholarly treatment of Fiddler on the Roof, there's a book I recommend by Elisa Solomon called Wonder of Wonders. So you can uh, take, take a look at that. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Yes, it's yet today's entry into CSP Hat Challenge. I can't see the angle so well, Ari. So there we have one of our entries. And uh, OK, one guess where that is. <laughs> Las Vegas. Now, only because the Statue of Liberty on the stamp was mistakenly taken from the one in Vegas. And, uh, and our third entry for today. All right. And just to let you know, I'm now up to two entries into the hat challenge myself to inspire and perhaps intimidate you. Here is our historical question. Assess the significance of the Eastern European Jewish migration to the United States. Uh, the thesis, Eastern European Jews redefined American Jewish life. Establishing New York City as the world's major Jewish demographic center. Challenging the nation's Central European Jews for control of communal organizations and embracing a more pluralistic view of acculturation. So we'll begin with a story that's probably familiar to many of you here, so we'll move more quickly through this. And this is the story before the immigration of Jews to the 1880s. This was the Pale of Settlement, the region of Eastern Europe which was mandated um, for Jews to, to live. I put this up here because when I teach this to my undergrads, they 
get nervous about spelling and writing. They said, would you just put the definition up there? So it's a territory within Tsarist Russia where Jews enjoy the legal right to settle and live, which is a nice way of saying they didn't enjoy the legal right to settle and live outside that particular um, Paola settlement. Um, and this is the famous Kishinev pogrom and Steve Zipperstein, who was actually on my doctoral committee at UCLA before he went up to Stanford, just uh, published a book on the pogrom, and I believe it was an honorable mention for the uh, Jew National Jewish Book Awards this year as well. So that's another book that I would recommend. A pogrom is to wreak havoc, to demolish violently, and it refers to the state-sponsored or state-approved anti-Semitism against um, Russian Jews. So when the pogroms occurred in Eastern Europe in the late 19th century, and, and here's sort of an archetypal shtetl, as, as we know, um, Eastern European Jews had a choice about what they wanted to do. One group could um, remain in Eastern Europe. And, well, history is a study of the past, but, but here's a, a, a chilling sort of meta-history. Uh, a third of the Eastern European Jewish population left, two million as we know. For those that left, stayed behind, almost all of them ended up getting killed in the Shoah, in the Holocaust. So ironically, the state-sponsored anti-Semitism of the Tsar and the pogroms, in a certain way, and it sounds really weird and uncomfortable to say it, but it was almost a blessing in disguise because that got millions of Jews out so that they were not there during World War II. Um, for those who are um, going to be coming to the American Zionism lecture, uh, here's a little preview. Not very many went to what was then Ottoman Palestine. Only about 40,000 did. Um, most actually came to New York, to Lower East Side, um, where, where two million immigrated. The largest migration of Jews ever in history. This is probably the most famous steamship slide picture of uh, immigrants to New York. Most made their way overland to Hamburg um, in Germany, and then they boarded ships there, and then they made themselves around the um, up to uh, Ellis Island. And if you've been to any of the earlier talks, you know I've already destroyed your myth that the guards at Ellis Island actually changed the names. Um, they, they didn't. Um, and then the Jews went to settle on Ellis Island, uh, from Ellis Island to the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side had the highest concentration of Jews in one place since biblical times. So now we'll look at the first generation um, of settlers. And this is the agriculture farm picture, which we'll skip right by because, okay, we'll go back. Turns out Jews in America were not into farming. There was not going to be a kibbutz kind of movement among American Jews. Only 3% of the first generation Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe went into the agricultural business. Most, of course, went into the clothing business. On the theme of complicating the narrative and deepen learning, uh, we'll jump, I'm going to talk about politics in a second, but uh, we know that many of the Eastern European Jews were leftist politically. They were members of labor unions. They, Jewish Jews led, created many labor unions. And the story we most often hear about the first generation Jewish immigrants in New York City is how they labored under horrific conditions in factories and then turned to labor unions in order to protect them. And we just sadly commemorated the, uh, I think the 100 year anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist fa Factory fire, which 
was the worst one and one which caused you know, changes across the country in terms of treatment of workers and organized labor. So there were 241 garment factories in New York City in the late 19th century. 241 garment factories. 234 were owned by Central European Jews. So you can do the math, 234 of the 241, which is like over 90%, 95% of the factories were Jewish owned and Jewish workers. So if you're a labor historian or interested in that, this is not the story of Jewish immigrants fighting against the evil American establishment. This is an inter-Jewish communal fight between those Jews who had arrived two generations earlier, had achieved financial success, and were now exploiting their brethren who were coming with much less, and the labor unions and the negotiations and the strikes and all the rest of it was almost in every case um, a, a Jew against a Jew. The Lower East Side, the mythical Lower East Side, uh, Hasia Diner, who I know you all met when you went to New York, she's one of the leaders of our field. Um, she, she had a graduate student write a book on name changing because she was interested in that. And then she, she's also written a book on the Lower East Side. Because the Lower East Side is like all one word. You just smush it all together and say it quickly. Um, only do you realize it is actually in Manhattan. It's on the east side of Manhattan. And it's a lower part of the eastern Manhattan. Hence, it gets the name Lower East Side. And what happens in history and historical memory is we tend to sort of ascribe qualities to the Lower East Side, whether or not they actually existed. Because we kind of invent or reinvent the Lower East Side over the generations since 1900 in order to have a romanticized version of what our history was and what it was like when we were there. And uh, so Professor Diner wanted to sort of write the scholarly book so everybody knew. And, uh, so here's the bad news about the Lower East Side. It was actually not a center of Jewish life because it was a revolving door. Jews arrived and left as soon as they possibly could. Between 1905 and 1915, two-thirds of the population of the Lower East Side came and left. Um, so it's more accurate to say that the Lower East Side was, was the first stopping point for Jewish immigrants who did not love being there because it was pretty miserable. And in those days, Harlem was actually a Jewish neighborhood in New York City. And they wanted to get out and get uptown to Harlem as fast as, fast as they could. And, and here's a shot uh, from there. Uh, there's a great book by Jeff Garak called When Harlem Was Jewish, if you're interested in that. Oh, oh, Jeff was here. Oh, fantastic. OK, never mind, CSP. Then you've probably seen the book. He is the nation's leading scholar on Orthodox, life, uh, Orthodox Jewish life in the United States. And, uh, and I appreciate him because the very first co uh, conference, academic conference I ever presented on a national level, um, he was the first question. And you're really nervous as a grad student when you get the question and the esteemed senior professor stands up. And since it was on Shabbat, and he's Shomer Shabbat and would not use the microphone, he yelled his question at me from across the room, which makes it more intimidating. And he offered a compliment of my treatment of Stephen S. Wise. So I even saw him last June at the conference. I said, thank you for that 30 years ago. I appreciated the boost. Um, did you all, I assume you toured the Tenement Museum when you guys went to New York? The closing event was at the tender. So I went to tour this, and um, I went in the um, wintertime, and it was very cold, and the tour guide took us through and apologized to us for how cold it was. 
And I said, oh, please, as, a, as an American Jewish historian, never apologize for how miserable it was to live in the Lower East Side because we're getting a, a, a stereophonic experience here. And then we went back in a New York August and felt the other side of what that would be particularly like. Um, Yiddish became a prominent feature of the first generation, especially in New York City. And uh, until um, one of the CSP members corrected me by bringing me the document, um, I believe that the United States government did not ask for religious classification on census, except for the 19, there's a 1920s religious census, but I saw that there was an Ellis Island entry that had Hebrew listed, uh, right, which is not necessarily Jewish, but it was a way that they could, that they could tell. We had um, Jewish theater, uh, Jewish press. This is the famous, for those of you who are not Yiddish literate, any Yiddish speakers here? Okay, I won't speak so freely. Um, this is the foreword. It's the socialist newspaper. It was the most popular Yiddish newspaper, except those that thought that the socialist paper was a sellout because they were reading the communist Freiheit. And that the communist paper really says the truth. The socialist paper didn't. This was the largest circulating non-English daily newspaper in the United States, which is the fancy way of saying more copies of the foreword were printed than the biggest German newspaper, because that was the only other newspaper um, that wasn't in English that, that did pretty well. So um, it was socialist. There's my socialist. Uh, Abraham Kahan was the, the longtime founding editor, one of the most important figures in American Jewish intellectual life, um, as well as political life, and, and clearly in journalism. And uh, by the way, I'm moving quickly through this for two reasons. One, I'm figuring this crowd probably knows most of this, so I'm just getting your neurons firing. Second, last week we had to cover 200 years. <laughs> and this, this week, only 60. But we have so much more to do in the 60 years than the 200. I'm just showing my, you know, my perspective as a 20th century US historian setting us up for next year when we're going to cut the years even more and spend more time there. So this is what I really wanted to get to. The Bintel Brief, uh, Yiddish for a bundle of letters, um, an advice column for, uh, for new immigrants. So who is this? Ann Landers. It could be Ann Landers. Who else could it be? Could be Dear Abby, because it turns out they're twin sisters, right? Um, the two leading advice column journalists, sisters from the Midwest, and uh, it turns out they were raised with their father reading to them the Bintel Brief advice column. So we believe that, uh, that, dear, that dear Abby and Ann Landers are both inspired by the Yiddish press, um, which, is, which is one interesting thing. The other is, that those two women defined what was proper etiquette for America, we'll say for Christian America. So these are two Jewish women who are the ones you know, defining it. So I wanted to say that only because um, I was really excited like some years ago, like it's been 20 already, but we were here in LA, still living in an LA, and we're going out to this hip restaurant in Venice by the water, and I'm sitting at the table and my whole family's there, like our extended family, and I look at the table next to us, and dear Abby sitting at the table. Uh, well, thank you all for being excited because my family was not excited. And I said, in my field, this is a big day, right? Well, I had to go to the bathroom later on. I go to the bathroom and, and, and for the woman in the room, 
Like the line for the women's bathroom was a mile long. There's no line for the men's room. And dear Abby's standing in line for the bathroom. And she's older. And I think she's got it's probably her daughter with her, you know, bringing her. So I go in the bathroom. It's single use. I come out of the bathroom. And dear Abby is still waiting in line. And to deploy the Yiddish, this is a Shonda. So I w an embarrassment and a humiliation. So I went to Dear Abby. I, I said, you're Dear Abby, aren't you? And she said, yes. And I introduced myself. I, and I said, look, they're single-use bathrooms. Why don't you use the men's room? I'll stand guard, you know? And she did. And then she walked out. And when she walked out, she looked at the door, and she looked horrified. I, I don't think she understood what I was saying. I, like, at that moment, she realized she'd just gone into the men's room. And I went, damn, I have just committed a social faux pas with the Abby. So what do you do? I went home, and I wrote a letter to Dear Abby. I said, if you're at a single-use bathroom, and the women are lined up down the block, and it's empty for men, is it OK for a woman to go into the men's room? And, every, and her, her daughter was writing the column at that point, and finally, after four months of checking the newspaper every day, I did not hear a response. So I just shared the story, hoping I made the, I made the right call. <laughs> so the Bintel Brief um, was a center for immigrants who had questions about what, it, what America was, what it meant to be an American, to write in. And then the editors of the Bintel Brief would write the response back. And um, I have the, they have two, a two-volume edited collection translated into English, if you're interested. Um, and I typically read some of the letters uh, to my students when we get to this part. And I left the book up north, so I was going to run to like Barnes and Noble. Um, and then on Chavez, I was at Ari's synagogue, and I'm like staring at the bookshelf behind. And, uh, Let's just say I borrowed the book for a week, but I let Ari know. I, he'll, he'll be nice to, uh, to return it for me, if you would, so I keep my good credit here uh, in Orange County. So here's how it's going to go. I'm going to read you the letter, and someone is going to tell me either how you would answer it or how you think the Bintel Brief would answer it. Then we'll give the actual answer. And then we'll imagine if there's any difference between any of that, what that might mean about the difference in American Jewish history from a century ago and today. So uh, here's the first question. From 1906, if that helps locate you in the history. Dear editor, for a long time I worked in a shop with a Gentile girl, and we began to go out together and fell in love. I appreciate the response, because I usually don't get a response for the opening line, but this is good. We agreed that I would remain a Jew and she a Christian. But after we'd been married for a year, I realized it would not work. I began to notice that whenever one of my Jewish friends comes to the house, she is displeased. Worse yet, when she sees me reading a Jewish newspaper, her face changes color. She says nothing, but I can see that she has changed. I feel she is very unhappy with me, though I know she loves me. She will soon become a mother, and she is more dependent on me than ever. She used to be quite liberal, but lately she's being drawn back to the Christian religion. She gets up early Sunday mornings, runs to church, and comes home with eyes swollen from crying. When we pass a church now and then, she trembles. Dear editor, advise me what to do now. I could never convert. And there's no hope for me to keep her from going to church. What can we do now? 
All right, that's the intermarriage question, right? Uh, yeah, Wendy. All right, 1906, the answer would be get a divorce. Any others from a 1906 perspective? You made your bed, lie in it. You made your bed, lie in it. Interesting <laughs> choice, okay. <laughs> in a number of ways, um, yeah. Make an agreement with your wife that the child will be raised Jewish. Okay, you, you find out a way to get the child raised Jewish. I'm repeating it so we get it on the podcast. I'm getting a thumbs up, so that's a good day for me. Um, all right, how, how would you or how would it be uh, answered in 2019? It's okay. It, it would be okay? Yeah. What's, any other ideas? If it's my own kid, no. Don't. If it's your own kid, no. Forget it. <laughs> any other ideas for a, sort of a modern 21st century approach to the question of intermarriage? All right, so here's what the editor said. Unfortunately, we often hear of such tragedies which stem from marriages between people of different worlds. It's possible that if this couple were to move to a Jewish neighborhood, the young man might have more influence on his wife. That's it. That's it. <laughs> is it the, are the, the writers male or female? Uh, I, that's a great question. It doesn't say, I'm assuming that's a man. Oh, the question is if, that, if the writers was, was a man, the respondent was a man or a woman. I'm assuming it's a man. I don't know. Probably it's 1906. How does the, how does the person no. answer the, the question, no? Yeah, so how did the person who did that know, know the neighborhood or not? Yeah, yeah. That the church, I guess the church is nearby. That would be a, that would be a New York Jewish neighborhood question. Let me give you the next, the next one. Yeah, right. So I'm, thank you. I only have two hours today, so I'm going to go on. This is from 1908. Dear editor, I ask you to give me some advice in my situation. I am a young man of 25, 16 years in America, and I recently met a fine girl she has a flaw, however, that keeps me from marrying her. The fault is, she has a dimple in her chin. And it is said that people who have this lose their first husband or wife. At first, I laughed at the idea. But later, it began to bother me. I began to observe people with dimpled chins and found out that their first husbands or wives really had died prematurely. I got so interested in this that whenever I see someone with a defect, I ask about it immediately, and I find out that some of the men who have lost their first wives and some of the women's first husbands are dead. This upset me so. I don't know what to do. I can't leave my sweetheart. I love her very much, but I'm afraid to marry her lest I die because of the dimple. I've questioned many people. Some say it's true. Others laugh at the idea. Perhaps you too will laugh at me for being such a fool and believing such nonsense, but I cannot rest until I hear your opinion about it. I want to add that my sweetheart knows nothing about this. Respectfully signed, the unhappy fool. All right, responses? Yeah? Hire a credible statistician. Hire a credible statistician, okay. Yeah? Oh my goodness, okay, anecdotal evidence, cleft chin who lost his first wife, okay, yeah. You are a fool and you need to marry her because you love her. You're a fool, you should marry her because you love her. Okay. All right, this, this is a, yeah. How about sending him to a psychiatrist? Send him to a psychiatrist, okay. So, so I'm going to read the response 
And the response is translated into English. I don't have it in Yiddish, but, but when you hear the English, imagine what it must have sounded like in the Yiddish, okay? And here's how it goes. The tragedy is not that the girl has a dimple in her chin, but that some people have a screw loose in their heads. <laughs> One would need the knowledge of a genius to explain how a dimple in the chin could drive a husband or wife to the grave. Does the angel of death sit hiding in the dimple? It seems to us that it is a beauty spot, and we never imagined it could house the devil. It's tragic humor to find such superstition in the world today. It's truly shameful that a young man who was brought up in America should ask such questions. To calm him, we wish to tell him we know many people with such dimples who have not lost their first husbands or wives, but live out their years together in great happiness. Oh, okay. So there's two pieces of the story, what I like, in addition to the humor, and the first is, of course, the superstition that Eastern European Jewish immigrants brought with them, and second, the notion of what America represented to Jewish immigrants. This is a place where you're supposed to be above that, smarter, more thoughtful. You're supposed to, in that case, for those who were here, I guess, on the last evening one, let go of the uh, model of immigrant acculturation that says you want to hold on to the past because now that you're an American, you should, um, you should be, a, be a lot smarter than that. So there were tensions between the Central Europeans and the Eastern, and you know already that the, the, so many of those factories were owned by Central European Jews. The Eastern Europeans, two million of them, religiously orthodox or politically leftist, socialist or communist. Um, and after 50 years of Central European middle class, you know, New York Jews doing really well, there was two things. One, the Central European Jews didn't want to help. They wanted to help Americanize the new immigrants. They did feel a kinship as Jews. And they felt that they should show their kinship by helping the new immigrants become American as quickly as possible, which meant shedding a lot of the Eastern European approach to what Judaism was. And I've mentioned in some of the talks, if you've been to one of them, the Galveston Project, um, Galveston, Texas. Um, and well, so the story went that when I was an undergraduate writing my thesis at Berkeley, um, and I learned about the Galveston Project. This was in 1906. Jacob Schiff, a wealthy and influential Jewish banker from New York, Central European origin, said that he is going to help integrate Eastern European Jews into America by making sure they don't go to New York. Because there's too many Jews in New York. Send them out to the West, send them through Texas, mix them up out there, way out there, maybe even Orange County someday, and <laughs> And with that, they will become American a whole lot faster. So the deal is, go to Galveston, I'll pay your boat fare. And then that was going to be his way of bringing them in. And before I tell you kind of what happened there, I'll tell you, I learned about this as an undergrad. I was so happy. I said, this is going to be my undergraduate history thesis. I even have the title. Are you ready for this? Galveston, colon, Ellis Island of the West. Isn't that nice? Yeah, thank you, thank you. So I went to something called a card catalog, which they used to have. It's a long thing. It's got like index cards and book titles are on it. Where you, and, yeah, and then you find the book, right? You find all the books. There's only one book that had been written on that, which is good because you want to be original. And the title of the book was, wait, let me remember. Okay, now I remember 
Galveston, colon, Ellis Island of the West. And that's why if you look in the index, you'll notice that my undergraduate thesis was on Jews of the California Gold Rush. <laughs> because that was that. Because it turned out what happened, um, and, and here's uh, Jacob Schiff, what happened was they went over to, um, to Galveston, um, got off the boat, went to the train station, and bought their ticket for New York. <laughs> because it turns out the train ticket was cheaper than the boat fare. So after two years of wasting his money, he just ended the Galveston project. So um, why were Eastern European Jews successful? This will be my complicating the narrative, just in case you're feeling too happy from those uh, brief letters. Now I will bring you down. Here is the number one most misrepresented answer for why Eastern European Jews do so well. Because of education, Jews apparently took advantage of education when they arrived in this country, and because of that, were able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps, as the expression goes. And uh, actually, that's not true. What happened? Well, the average education for the first generation Jewish immigrants was eighth grade. And if you imagine parents, grandparents, you know, whatever, if, if your ancestors came through Eastern Europe, you probably know they didn't go to college. And probably they didn't even go to high school, and a lot of them ended up dropping out in middle school. It was really not until the second generation, that the kids born in the US who learned English as their first language, they were the ones who, who went to college and the universities. And most of it actually was post-1945 with the GI Bill, but we're going to get to that next week. So the number one reason why Eastern European Jewish Jews succeeded in America was not education. It was business. Business was great. So uh, Eastern European Jews arrived at the height of the Industrial Revolution, despite the fact that so many, of course, were being exploited in factories at sub-minimum wages because they didn't really exist. A whole lot of others were getting involved in small businesses, and you probably know a dozen stories of how they start um, you know, on push carts around, and then that goes into a building, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and we have a few stories of like you know, gazillionaires who do that. Hasia Diner's most recent book is actually on that particular topic, and it's fascinating because it's, it, um, uh, Professor Diner tries to diminish regional differences among Jews. That's one of her career theses. I tend to think northern Jews and southern Jews are different in a certain way because I deal with politics. And she talked about Jewish merchants who were traveling from place to place to show that no matter what part of the country they were pushing their cart, they had a similar kind of experience and understanding. The third is the migration patterns. Migration patterns were critical to American Jewish success. For example, when Italians immigrated, and they immigrated at about the same time, they're almost all young, unmarried men. And the reason, what you can tell from an immigration that's young, unmarried men, is they intend to come over and work and earn money and go back home with the money to buy land, get married, and start a family. The purpose of immigration for young, unmarried male immig immigrations is a temporary transitional moment in their lives. And that wasn't the case with the Jews. Because they were leaving due to the pogroms of Eastern Europe, they were not going back home to Eastern Europe. When they got on the boat, they were going. And while it's true that's, that men sometimes came first for the purpose of setting up shop, earning some money, the only reason they were going first is because they couldn't afford to bring their whole family at once, because if they could afford to bring their whole family at once, they did. This was a family migration program. And when uh, immigration historians see that a particular group is coming over in family units, it shows an intent to stay. 
And if there is an intent to stay and you're bringing your family over, you are all in for America. In this case, in most cases, you're all in for New York City. And that means that those immigrants will make long-term decisions whenever they have to make a choice of what to do. I'll give you an example. Home ownership is, is one good data point. The way the home ownership works, if you are a uh, young unmarried Italian man, you're not buying a home. You're, you're gonna live in a cheap, dusty apartment at lowest rent possible so you can accumulate as many dollars as possible and then get out. If you're coming with a family and you're trying to set up a life so your children and your grandchildren will have a better life than you ever did, you're going to want to get into a house as soon as you possibly can because that's part of sort of moving up the scale. And whiteness, which is a theme that I've addressed in a whole bunch of lectures if you've been to any of them. Um, Eastern European Jews were white. And as whites, they enjoyed a certain power and privilege when they arrived. That immigrants of color, certainly African immigrants, brought you know, in slavery, and uh, Chinese and Japanese immigrants here in California, indigenous peoples you know, who weren't even immigrants, there, there is a very strong division between white immigrants and non-white immigrants on how well they did. And uh, so for Jewish immigrants who enjoyed the privilege of whiteness, who brought their families, who went into business, all of that combined to raise them up even in one generation. So the second generation could then enjoy public education and go to college. And then the second generation entered the business ranks. And I'll stop there on that because we're going to get to World War II too quickly. We'll move, sadly, to the theme of American anti-Semitism because that also played out. Um, this, this is uh, Bill, Wilhelm Marr, who's the one who invented the term in, in 1879. And uh, by the 1920s, there was, which one is this? Oh yeah, the races of Europe. So in the late 19th and early 20th century, the eugenics movement took hold. Yeah. Initially, the eugenics movement sounded like a good idea. New scientific discoveries were being made at such a rapid clip, the thought was, you could apply science to genetics and you could uh, eliminate diseases and you could help people become healthier. Sadly, most of the eugenics scientists, and I put that in quotes, I mean, they, they call themselves scientists, the whole society called them scientists, but what they were doing was not actually real science. They began to associate inferior genetic qualities with certain immigrant groups. And certainly immigrant groups of color were, were, were often demoted, and that happened even before the late 19th century. Um, what happened here with The Races of Europe, th this is a very important book, and in The Races of Europe um, by William Z. Ripley, believe it or not, um, <laughs> that's a slow one, thank you. My undergrads only get it because they have a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in, in uh, Fisherman's Wharf, so they've been to that. What Ripley did in this book is he said not only are people of color dark-skinned, but even white-skinned people have different racial statuses. And for him, there were three racial statuses. The Teutonic, and the Teutonic would, would later be the Aryan, which is Northern European, Scandinavian, French, British. These were the smart ones and the intelligent ones, the hardworking ones, the democratic, loving ones. This is what you'd want to be. You'd want to be Teutonic. Um, 
There was the middle group of Alpine, if you kind of move south, you get worse genetically. And this is like Switzerland and Austria. You don't want to be the Mediterraneans, the Southern Europeans. And Eastern European Jews were fit into, into this. Because the notion was that, um, well, that the, this is an Italian, that they were idiots. I mean, genetically idiots. Well, somebody pointed out that they did invent the Renaissance, and they did have Michelangelo <laughs> and Da Vinci. But the scientists said, not to worry, we get it. So here's how it goes. The Italians are idiots, except for art. <laughs> we'll figure out why that is in the gene pool, but they, but they understood that. All right, so if, if, if and you can't answer this if, you, if you've heard this in an earlier lecture, if a, if a Teutonic marries a Mediterranean and has a kid, what classification is the kid? Oh, we'll say Alpine, just as it's in the middle. I don't know, I'm just having fun with this, right? All right, so the Alpine kid grows up, gets married, and let's have the Alpine kid marry the Teutonic, keep pure genetic stock, and they have a kid. And that kid grows up, let's marry that kid off to another Teutonic. Let's do it over and over and over again by generation, always marrying a Teutonic. How many generations before the child is a pure Teutonic stock? Thank you, math majors. Yes, it never actually gets there. You go from 50% to, to 25 to 12 and a half, you know, it goes half, half, half. It always approaches the line, but never actually touches the line if we have math people in here, which means the introduction of a single immigrant who is not Teutonic, who marries a real American will destroy the prized American genetic stock forever. The KKK reemerged in this era in the 1920s. They were actually not violent, like the, like the KKK of Reconstruction. This KKK's motto was 100% Americanism. And 100% Americanism means don't intermarry with an inferior gene pool because then you will no longer have a 100% American. And that is where the so-called so purity came. And, uh, and then it played into immigration. Believe it or not, there were issues around immigration in America and whether or not immigrants who come to America are a threat to America. And the challenge here in 1921 was the US Congress was upset that the um, Southern and Eastern European immigrants who were coming in were going to destroy the prized American gene pool. So in 1921, they um, created um, an immigration bill, which was called the Immigration Act of 1921. It, it established a national origins quota system, which means, well, it was 1921, so the 1920 census wasn't yet done, so they had to go to the 1910 census. They look at the 1910 census, they count like, let's say, for every 100 Italians in the 1910 census, you get three Italians every year to immigrate. So it was a 3% national origins quota system. So you just count up from the census, and then that's your number. That was a lame duck session of Congress in 21. It was an emergency action. So by 24, 1924, they'd figured out exactly you know, what they wanted to do. So they decided in those three years, 3% was too nice, so they dropped it to 2%. By 1924, the 1920 census was done, so they used the 1890 census. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, wait, did he just say 1890 census? Why on earth did they do that, rhetorically speaking? Well, if you take an ethnic, racial, immigrant map of an 1890 America versus a 1920 America, do you want 2% of, of, of which one? 1890, because that was pre-Jewish immigration. So the way that they were able to get rid of the Alpine, Mediterranean, Eastern European, Southern European immigrants was to, so that was state-sponsored anti-Semitism by the United States Congress for the express purpose of all but eliminating Jewish immigration. Um, the way it really worked out when you did the numbers, if you were from Italy, I think the quota was 5,800 a year. There's a lot more than 5,800 Italians who wanted to come here to work. So essentially, Italy was closed. England, like 85,000. Oh, I'm in London. I think I'd like to take a trip to New York. Okay, go get your visa. Because pretty much anyone in England who wanted to come could come. So the effect of the 1924 law was to end um, Jewish immigration. And of course, we know that that became particularly challenging in the 1930s and 40s because that's what stopped Jewish um, immigrants who were trying to get out of Nazi Germany uh, and Nazi-occupied Europe to, to get to the US. Oh, don't think that the US Congress was all that bad. They did have an exception to the rule, Mexico. Free immigration from Mexico, yes. Well, do the Ripley believe it or not, right? Because uh, industry wanted the cheap labor. And they actually lobbied the government for free and open immigration. They didn't say that officially. Officially, they said North American goodwill demands that Mexico be open. And there's another one, too. Uh, Canada also had free immigration after 1924, officially because of North American goodwill. Uh, unofficially, well, Canada is pretty much Teutonic in the gene pool, so they don't have to worry about that. And as I explained to my students, who probably think I'm already way dated, who is going to be really concerned about Avril Lavigne, who is Canadian, or Celine Dion, or Jim Carrey, or even Neil Young? So, a lot more. yeah, and a lot more too. Yeah, you know the Canadians when they travel. There's a giant Canadian flag sewn on every article they have, <laughs> which is not Canadian pride. It's their way of saying I'm not from the United States. Yeah. Right, so if, if, if you came, so did, um, so many Eastern European Jews came through Canada, and depending, of course, on when they came, if they got Canadian citizenship, and what the rules were, yes, that, that, that could be an end run. I need to stop on the questions now, just so I can get to something really depressing, <coughs> the Great Depression. Um, for the Yiddish speakers here, you know, American Jews in the 1930s voted for FDR 82% in 1932. In the 44 wartime elections, up to 90%. Leading Judge Jonah Goldstein of New York to lament using the Yiddish that American Jews lived in three Welten, three worlds. Die Welt, this world. Jena Welt, the world to come. And Roosevelt. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. My undergrads don't laugh. I was uh, giving an annual lecture at UC Santa Barbara on Monday, and I had some students for a lunch seminar. I threw the joke at them, and they chuckled. So I said, I appreciate your chuckle. I'm going to try it back with my students. Um, so uh, as you may remember from last week with Peter Stuyvesant, the Stuyvesant Pledge brought, came back in the Great Depression. 
when Isaac Rubinow, who um, was the one who wrote the Social Security Act of 1935, asked, what do we owe Peter Stuyvesant? Should American Jews in the 1930s still take care of their own with the economic depression? And the answer, of course, um, all the way around was absolutely not. That FDR was leading a national recovery for the whole country, and Jews were not suffering because they were Jews. Jews were suffering because they were Americans. And for that reason, forget about the Stuyvesant Pledge. So the Stuyvesant Pledge ends officially, unofficially in the 1930s. But what's great about the 1930s is that um, most of American social policy was really unenlightened. And it blamed poor people for their own impoverishment. But Jews who came over from Eastern Europe, or really it was now their kids who were, who were going up in America, were either traditionally religious Jews, and we know that tzedakah is something that everybody gives and, and those who get, get, and there should not be shame involved. And we work very hard not to shame people who need, and not to blame people because everybody has that problem. Or you were a socialist and a communist, in which case you wanted the government to get in there and start helping the people. And FDR, who was interested in any new ideas in a very desperate time, brought in Jewish social workers and Jewish policy makers into the federal government, and they brought what I argue is Jewish views of poverty um, into the story. The incarceration of US citizens of Japanese descent, and if you were there last night for California Jews, we had a chapter on this, so we talked about it. This was challenging, and I should say it's not just a challenge for American Jews. The Democratic Party, by the way, we used to call it internment. Uh, scholars now call it incarceration, because that's what it was. Internment is a word used by those who did it to pretend that they weren't doing it. So I, use, I do my best to call it incarceration, and sometimes I mess up. Um, incarceration was supported by the Democratic Party. It was supported by the Republican Party. It was supported by the ACLU and it was supported by Jewish leaders. So I'm an American Jewish historian, so I'm only interested in that question, but I want to be clear that the real question here is what happens to a democracy when it goes to war? What happens to constitutional rights when, we're, when we have racist fears in the country? That's the big question. That said, um, all right, my doctoral, I did this for my first book and my dissertation, my doctoral advisor made me cry when I submitted chapter four on World War II. And uh, because I only had a paragraph on the incarceration, and she's, you know, she like, yelled at me about how dumb I was that I only had a paragraph. And then I told her, I've studied everything, there's only a paragraph out there. And then she said, I want 10 pages on why there's only a paragraph out there, <laughs> which is writing the history of non-history. And as it turns out, there's a lot of history to why it is that American Jews ran away from the question at the same time that German-Jewish refugees who made it to America holding German pa uh, passports were called enemy aliens in December of 1941 because the US government bureaucracy thought they were Nazis, right? So the Jewish agency defense people in New York had to run to the government and say, no, if they're Jewish, they're not Nazis. They're victims of Nazis. Don't bring them in like they're Nazis. And the government understood and obliged, and there was an exception to the rule. But they didn't turn to the West to say, if you're a US citizen, two, three, four generations in America holding a US passport, you're not a national threat either from Japan. And um, it turns out, thanks to Ellen Eisenberg, who is uh, a contributor to the California Jews book and has now written a lot on this topic, the only Jewish leaders 
who publicly opposed incarceration were the classical reform rabbis of San Francisco because they were anti-Zionist. Mm -hmm. Professor Eisenberg made the correlation between anti-Zionism and anti-incarceration because that anti-Zionism is from the political right. They're patriotic, loving Americans who know how much America did for Jews and they can't imagine the country that they love so much could possibly treat its citizens that way. And because they're from San Francisco, they see it firsthand and they were the only ones that came out um, in opposition. So, the rise of Hitler and uh, brought a rise of domestic anti-Semitism as well. There was um, a boycotts of Jewish businesses. American Jews started boycotting German goods into the United States. Uh, and uh, there was an America First campaign which of course came back in the 2016 presidential campaign, America First was a coalition of all sorts of people against US involvement in the war, leading, led by uh, Lindbergh, who was then the most famous American, who went barnstorming through the Midwest with anti-Semitic speeches claiming America First, arguing that Britain, FDR, and the Jews were trying to get the United States into an unwanted and unneeded war in Europe. And, uh, once the war began, and uh, once the US was, in, was involved, it was actually great in American Jewish life, because now, now Hitler was the enemy of the United States, so you can't really be anti-Semitic anymore, because you've got to be anti-Nazi, and when you're anti-Nazi, you're pro-Jewish. Um, and then we had the big question in American Jewish history in World War II. Where was FDR in helping the Jews, generally, because he wasn't there so much, and specifically, why didn't they bomb Auschwitz or any of the concentration camps as a way of slowing down the killing machine? And David Wyman, who in 1985 published a pathbreaking book um, called The Abandonment of the Jews. Wyman, the child of Protestant clergy who spent his entire career trying to understand uh, FDR, demonstrated that it actually would have been um, very easy for the United States to have done that if only they would have thought of that. So, without yet the state of Israel, with Eastern European Jewish life tra tragically gone, the United States in 1945 becomes the new center of world Jewish life. What happened then? What happened there? For more on that, I'm afraid we'll have to wait until next time. <laughs> Questions now? Uh, yes. Was there ever any documented evidence that uh, someone of Japanese ancestry in the United States, uh, United States citizen, ever did anything against the United States and in favor of Japan? Was there any documented evidence that a United States citizen of Japanese descent engaged in any sabotage or espionage against the United States? Uh, absolutely none. And when that evidence was brought in front of the Toland Commission, a congressional commission investigating incarceration, one of the defenders in Congress said that the fact that no evidence yet exists of any kind of sabotage is a confirming indicator that it's about to happen. Oh you can't win for losing there. And the greatest argument for the racist undertone of incarceration is that the, ostensibly the argument is for, for, for safety in war, you have to remove the threat. Right, because US citizens of Japanese descent were considered a military threat. The most sensitive 
military spot for the United States at that time was Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. If you wanted to uh, incarcerate Japanese Americans, the first place you got to do it is in Hawaii. They did not incarcerate in Hawaii because one-third of the population of U.S. citizens were of Japanese descent. There'd be nobody left to fight the Japanese. Uh, yeah? Despite that history of incarceration, I think you mentioned that the, uh, uh, that, uh, the Japanese and the Chinese, the Asian immigrants, you know, were still at a disadvantage, obviously, to the Jews. But in the, at least up through the 1980s and 1990s, the per capita income of Japanese families in, uh, in America was actually higher than Jewish families and was, in fact, the highest of any ethnic group. Can you comment? All right, so the question is to talk about the um, high per capita income of Japanese immigrants to the United States in recent times. This, this is officially off topic, to, all right? But unofficially, I actually know the answer, so I'm gonna answer it, all right? This is what sociologists such as Ronald Takaki call the model minority myth. And the first part of Asian and Asian American immigration myth is that Asia is actually not a place. I mean, it is a place, but it's a continent. So when we say Asian American, it's generally not folks who come from that region of the world using that phrase. They will usually refer to the country they come from. And every country has a different story from another country. And even within the same country, China, for example, there are multiple stories even, even among it. So there's actually a bifurcated history. In 1882, the United States Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which ended all Chinese immigration, which was devastating for the Chinese immigrants in California because they were almost all men because they were coming over to work on the Transcontinental Railroad, and, now, and, they, and they were planning on going home, and now they can't have money, they don't have the money even to get the boat fare home. There's no one who can come, and these, it was a 27 to one man, man to woman ratio and they lived their lives in, 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 in isolation in terms of developing families. So much, and then when that happened in 1882, this is when the Japanese immigration begins to California to replace the Chinese immigration. So in 1908, um, Congress is thinking to end that, and, and President Theodore Roosevelt, after the Japanese leadership intervened, said, let's not pass a law. We'll have a gentleman's agreement, Trans-Pacific. Uh, you do not say Japanese can't come. We will never send another Japanese immigrant, with one exception, family reunification. The wives of the current um, you know, California Japanese will come, except none of them were married. So they had trans-Pacific weddings with brides they'd never met to get them on the ship to come over so that the numbers were, were there. It's not going to be until actually the 1970s, in the wake of the Vietnam War, that um, Asian American country, the Asian countries are gonna have a, a new immigration. There's gonna be a much bigger immigration then. That's when the gender norms are gonna come back into play. And what you're describing is actually a consequence of the post-Vietnam era 1970s moment that's actually disconnected from the last. Yeah? Uh, you mentioned that in the late 30s and early 40s, our State Department was very anti-Semitic. And that was a reason for the shipped with all the immigrants from Germany, uh, Jews on them, the ship was turned back. Correct, so is there a question? Okay. For the, okay, thank you. So the statement was that there's anti-Semitism in the State Department in World War II. There was a ship, the St. Louis, they call the Voyage of the Damned, 
um, which was brought to the United States and rejected and ultimately got sent back to Europe and most of the people on the ship. Um, but I'll, I'll make a question out of that if I can. If you're interested, PBS, The American Experience, has something called Deceit and Indifference, America and the Holocaust. It's a one-hour film. It's exactly the thesis you're talking about. And it's David Wyman's book, The Abandonment of the Jews, on TV, so you don't have to read the book. So Deceit and Indifference, America and the Holocaust, from PBS, The American Experience. Uh, I'm officially out of time. I'm good till dinner, but I'll leave it up to you how much time you have to go. One last question, then we got to wrap it up. Okay. This one and then Ross. Okay, yeah. You mentioned Lindbergh right through the Midwest. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, my concept is the Jews in Los Angeles were very well off until the Midwestern people started coming out and they brought out their Semitism. Okay. So the question is, where did the anti-Semitism in LA come from? Um, so I don't know specifically about how much migration of Midwesterners were there were to LA, but I can tell you that, that the heartland was the seat of anti-Semitism from the late 19th century for a variety of reasons, that urban areas tended to be more friendly to Jews nationally, uh, so what you're saying would make sense. What percentage of the migration from Europe were socialist communists versus Orthodox. Uh, what percentage of socialist communists versus orthodox? An excellent question. You've stumped me. You get a pencil for that because I don't know the exact number. Now I'm going to look it up. Um, generally, it's not so many orthodox and communists as we would think. Um, there, and while there were a lot of orthodox, it's not going to be orthodox the way we would understand orthodoxy today. It's going to be Eastern European traditional Jewish life as that was. And as they understood that, so when they come here, it's a whole new world, and the conservative movement will very quickly grow from a lot of the formerly orthodox too. So, so to go into Bindula Brief, uh, I, do you know who wrote those questions? The, what historians say? Do you know the answer? The, who wrote who, these? Who wrote the? Who edited? So the my book? understanding is go. that uh, if you know that there were questions and the answers that were that um, the questions really didn't come in from the population. Do you know the story? Oh, no, no, please. Oh that Abe Cahan actually wrote the question and then he answered them. That's yeah. what I understand from the story. Anyway, thank you all for coming out on a rainy day. We'll see thank you, you uh, tomorrow.